Amen. The story of, of Sodom is disturbing and raw and real. This is not mythology. This is not a fable meant to teach us some life lessons. It's history, and it's revealed history and scripture meant to teach us about God and his ways, specifically his divine justice, mercy, and judgment. Now, many mock at the idea of divine judgment and view it as primitive, but it's one of the the main themes of scripture, and it finds an echo in every human heart. God has given us a desire for justice. We want justice to be done in this world. But if God is not just, then what hope is there for humanity? If God doesn't bring about justice, then what hope is there for perfect, perfect justice to be served like we all desire? This world is chock full of injustice, oppression, and evil that is never resolved fully in this life. And so if God doesn't address it, who will? At the same time, If God is as just and as holy as this passage indicates, then the same question applies in the other direction. If God's as holy as that, what hope does humanity have? Who can escape the wrath of this God? Well, let me give you the answer, and let me give you the big idea up front, and then we'll unpack it together. God will judge all unrepentant sinners, but will also rescue all those who trust God will powerfully judge all unrepentant sinners, but will also rescue all those who trust in him, no matter how weak their faith is. That's what we're going to see as we go through our text, and we're going to break it into two main points. We're going to look at the depravity of Sodom and the deliverance of Lot. The depravity of Sodom and the deliverance of Lot. For our first main point, remember that Sodom has already been mentioned multiple times in Genesis so far. The men of Sodom were described as evil and sinning immensely against the Lord. Back in in chapter 13, when Lot chose to set up his tent and live in the well-watered and lush plain where Sodom was located, that fertile plain helped make Sodom a very wealthy and prosperous city. Then in chapter 14, we see that Sodom and Gomorrah were routed by uh, four kings, an invading alliance, and Lot, along with the rest of the people and the wealth of Sodom, were taken away as plunder. In chapter 14, we also see that Abraham miraculously saved all of them and returned the people and plunder to the greedy and ungrateful king of Sodom. Most importantly, God told Abraham in chapter 18, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. So God says their sin, it's extremely serious. That passage goes on to show that God sent two angels ahead of him as witnesses to confirm the wickedness of the city and revealed that his plan was was to destroy it because of how deeply the people had given themselves over to sin. However, Abraham's prayer at the end of chapter 18 revealed that God was willing to spare the entire city if only 10 righteous individuals were found there. That backdrop, it creates a tension for first-time readers as we come to chapter 19 and the two angels enter Sodom. Now we're finally going to find out what exactly happens within the walls of this infamous city. We're going to find out, are there enough righteous men and women there for God to spare it? Well, it doesn't take us long to find out the answer to that question. In verses 1 through 3, when Lot sees these two strangers, he desperately insists that they stay with him instead of in the city square. And then he treats them hospitably when they finally agree and come and stay in his house. This brings us to the ugly section of verses 4 through 11. Verse 4 says, Before they went to bed, 
the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. That phrase, young and old, shows that the depravity in Sodom, it was not limited to one generation. It had spread to everyone. It was embraced by the whole city. The phrase, the whole population, it can literally be translated to the last man. To the last man. All the men of Sodom were there. Now, why did all the men of, city, of the city surround Lot's house? Look at verse 5. They called out to Lot and said, Where are the men you, who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so that we can have sex with them. These hardened sinners had no shame. They didn't even hide their intentions. They planned to have sex with the visitors staying with Lot, and we see soon that they were willing to use force if necessary. As this seems to have been a common occurrence. It seems to be that this is why Lot was so desperate that they, don't, that they didn't stay in the city square. He knew what would happen to them if they did. Now, some liberal scholars have argued that the, the city, they viewed these men as spies. So they weren't attempting to, to sexually violate them, but instead, uh, they just wanted to know them. That's what the phrase, have sex with them, in the Hebrew literally means, to know them. However, the phrase to know, it's often used as a euphemism for sex in the book of Genesis. And that interpretation, it seems completely ridiculous in context when you consider how Lot responds to them. This is verses 6 through 8. Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. Now, what would be evil about asking questions to potential spies? Lot says, don't do this evil thing. There's nothing evil about that. That's not what this passage is about. Instead, Lot is trying to protect his guest from being sexually violated. But the way he does it is also repulsive. He offers his virgin daughters to the mob instead. And if that wasn't hard enough to fathom, 2 Peter 2 shocks us by stating three times in just two verses that Lot was a righteous man. Has that section ever bothered you in 2 Peter? It's, me it's messed with my head a little bit. How could a righteous man possibly suggest what Lot did? Well, a factor in explaining Lot's behavior, not an excuse, but a factor is that in the ancient Middle East, protecting visitors under your roof, that was viewed as one of the highest virtues. In fact, a very similar situation occurs in Judges 19. There's an old man, and he offers his virgin daughter sexually again to wicked men in order to protect a stranger staying the night in his house. So somehow, at that time, this seemed justifiable. Others have also suggested that since Lot's daughters were engaged, that he assumed the men would not violate them because of cultural expectations at the time. Now, even if that thought process is, is accurate, which seems highly unlikely to me, based on how, how Lot knew how morally corrupt the men of Sodom were, even if that's right, what he suggested is still inexcusable and disgusting. His suggestion, it, it highlights how influenced Lot has been by the wicked city he chose to live in. And this should be sobering for us as believers. We can be conformed by our world. We can be shaped by our world as well. And there can be decisions we make, decisions that seem like the best course of action in a particular situation that can actually flagrantly violate and go against God's will. 
We're going to explore uh, the complicated and sad character and decline of Lot in more detail next week. But for now, what I want you to notice in verses 9 through 11 is that Lot's attempts to protect his guest, it only served to offend the men of Sodom. He didn't, he didn't save them. Ironically, the men he was trying to protect, he needed them to save him. And so the, the angels, they eventually revealed their supernatural identity by blinding the men of Sodom. However, these men, they were so enslaved to their lust that even after they're struck blind, the text seems to imply in verse 11 that they're still searching for the door. They're still looking for an opportunity to gratify their evil desires. There's not the slightest suggestion anywhere in the text of repentance or remorse from any of the citizens of Sodom, even in the, even in the face of the supernatural uh, mini-judgment where they were struck blind during the very pursuit of their sin. Now, before we turn to our second main point, we need to clarify an important question, and that is why did God destroy Sodom? In other words, what sin or sins led to the unique and dramatic judgment that they received? If you've been raised in the conservative church, the only sin you likely associate with Sodom is that of homosexuality. The two are so associated, the term sodomy became a synonym for homosexual acts. However, if you were raised in a liberal church instead of a conservative church, you likely believe the sin was societal injustice. Now, if that sounds like a joke to you, you probably haven't read Ezekiel 16, where God himself tells this to the city of Jerusalem. He says, As I live, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not behaved as you and your daughters have. Now, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. So God's saying, this is the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food, and comfortable security, but didn't support the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable acts before me, so I removed them when I saw this. This is a provocative section where God is telling his people that they've acted worse than the city of Sodom. The city that is infamous for their wickedness, God says, you, my people, you've acted worse. You've behaved worse worse than they have. And the specific sins mentioned by God are pride and greed manifested in the fact that although they were very wealthy, they were not willing to support the poor and the needy. To further add support to this position, when God told Abraham in Genesis 18 that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was great, that word outcry is regularly used in the Old Testament to describe the oppressed and poor crying out to God for justice. So was Sodom punished for their sexual sins? or for these other societal sins? Well, the answer is yes. Yes, it's both. God, as we've already seen in Genesis, he hates it when the weak and the vulnerable are oppressed, but he also hates sexual sin because he knows how blinding it is to our souls and because of how destructive it is to ourselves and others. Look again at God's assessment of Sodom's sin in verse 50. He says, they were haughty and did detestable acts before me. So I removed them when I saw this. The first time that word detestable is used in the Bible in regards to what God finds detestable is in Leviticus 18.22, where it refers to a man sleeping with another man like he would with a woman. So was oppression and injustice a major factor in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes, definitely. But so was sexual sin. And the attempted citywide rape of these apparently vulnerable visitors in Genesis 19, it's an extreme manifestation of both of these sins. 
It highlights both of these areas of sin. It also shows that homosexuality, or at least bisexuality, was the norm for the men of Sodom. Now, I say that because other revisionist scholars, they'll say that the only problem here in Sodom was that it was sexual violence. It was the attempted rape. And obviously, there's a moral distinction, a great moral distinction between the rape that we see here, what's going on in Genesis 19, that attempt, and consensual sex between same-sex attracted adults. Obviously, there's a difference there. But you can't reduce it to just that. Because in Jude, when the, the uh, apostle is looking back, when he's reflecting on what happens, he says that, that they were judged because of their sexual immorality and because of their pursuit of other flesh, unnatural flesh, referring to homosexuality. Now, obviously, what I've just said is not politically correct. Most of you, as you hear this, like me, you probably think of friends, neighbors, and even family members who we love that are same-sex attracted. I think there are two opposite errors that Christians can be tempted to make in our culture regarding the topic of homosexuality and the LGBTQ question or the LGBTQ plus revolution as a whole. I think the first, the first error is to try to minimize the sinfulness of it. It's to try and minimize the sinfulness of it. Now I need to make a quick disclaimer here. There is a difference between unwanted same-sex attraction that Christians are trying to repent of. There's a difference between that and same-sex lust that's indulged and behavior that's practiced. There is a, a difference there. But Christians, we can be tempted to minimize the sinfulness of it and just emphasize God's real love for all people. And God does love everyone, but that can be so, so promoted as a way to hide behind ever actually being honest that the Bible is clear in both the Old Testament and New Testament, so clear that homosexual acts are a serious sin, that they violate God's good design for human beings. While that is a blasphemous thought and statement to our culture, as believers, we must not be ashamed or unwilling to share the truth when it's appropriate. Now, I'm not suggesting that the first time you meet someone and you find out they're gay, that you just condemn them, that you say, hey, did you know the Bible says that's a sin? Like that, That's not what I'm suggesting. But at the same time, what would you do if, if someone came up to you, maybe at, at work, maybe a neighbor, and they said, do you, do you think that same-sex behavior, do you, think, do you think that's a sin? Is that a sin? What would you say? See, it would, of course, be unloving as a believer to lie. You can't lie. That's inappropriate. But at the same time, it would also be unloving to obscure the truth. I hope you would start with God's love. I hope you would start there. I hope you wouldn't stop there. I hope you'd also, also explain what the Bible teaches. And I think there is a pressure that many in the evangelical world are, are succumbing to of minimizing the sinfulness of homosexuality because of the societal pressure to avoid offending anyone. Some of you have probably felt this. I've felt this before. I, I don't want to offend people. That's not my goal. And I think because of that, many Christians, they're scared or at least uncomfortable of those who identify as gay or trans or, or non-binary because they're afraid of potentially awkward spiritual conversations or being labeled as bigoted or homophobic. You know, a thought for me that has been helpful, I, I don't know if it'll be helpful for you, but a thought that's been helpful for me 
is that unless there's a change in the trajectory of our culture, if you're going to be outspoken, if you're going to be clear that you're a Christian, if you're going to be open about that and share the gospel with people, it's only a matter of time before you offend someone. It's only a matter of time before someone is going to misunderstand you and label you as bigoted. If you're just trying to love people in the community, share the gospel with them, that's going to happen. And something I want you to consider, it would not surprise me at all if we keep going as a country the next 10 years, the next 20 years. It wouldn't surprise me at all if it, at some point a news story would pop up about how uh, Walnut Creek Church, it's a dangerous place towards, towards the LGBTQ community. And the article in the register, the newspaper at night, it might not cite any mistreatment of actual individuals, but it could just cite thoughts that I'm sharing right now, just, just preaching God's word. If that happened, how would you react? If your family and friends thought you were in a dangerous church because just the ethics of the Bible were preached, would that cause you to, to go to another, another church that would be more acceptable to those around you? See, I think it's good to, to think through that before it, before it happens because that's the trajectory that we're on. So that's, that's one error. It's to minimize the sinfulness of it. However, the, the soft compromise of some, it provokes the opposite extreme in others. The opposite error is to be so strong and vocal about the sinfulness of homosexuality that it can begin to sound like an unforgivable sin. There are some people and some churches that do give credibility to the stereotype that Christians are homophobic and judge those outside the church self-righteously. Churches like that would do well to consider Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 10, 15. This is where he sent them out to preach the good news to all the towns and cities in Israel. And so those towns and cities, they would have condemned and disdained any homosexual expression or activity. They would have had a traditional view on, on sexuality. And yet Jesus said this about those same towns if they rejected the good news and would not repent. He said, truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Homosexual sin, it's not an unforgivable sin. And as believers, we're called to, to love everyone, even those who, who are very different in what they believe, people who are very different from us. And I'm thankful as a, a pastor for the consistent example that, that many of you have set that totally undermines the, the stereotype of self-righteousness. You know, our, our church has welcomed people from all different backgrounds, religions, and even sexual identifications and tried to genuinely love them and point them to Christ. And so my hope for us as a church, my hope is that by God's grace, we'd continue to grow and that we would always speak the truth in love like our Savior, Jesus Christ. That we'd have both deep convictions and also deep compassion for others. So that while it's very, very clear where we stand concerning the sexual and gender confusion in our, in our society, it would also be clear, it would be undeniable that we love and care for our neighbor, even those who disagree with us, even those who are offended by what we believe. Now, there's a lot more that we could say on this topic, but for the sake of time, we need to turn to our second main point, and that's the deliverance of Lot. The deliverance of Lot. In verses 12 through 13... Lot learns for the first time that the angels, or from the angels, that the city is about to be destroyed. And so Lot, he ventures out of his house to speak to the men who are engaged to his daughters. And apparently these were men of Sodom. And if that's the case, they would have been part of the wicked mob that surrounded his house. 
these men, though, instead of humbling themselves in light of the semi-judgment of blindness that had already struck the men of Sodom, they merely laughed at Lot. They just laughed him off as joking. They didn't take him seriously. Now, this is a common response when people uh, hear about divine judgment, and we're going to circle back to that later. But after failing to convince these two men to flee, Lot, he returned to his house, which brings us to verses 15 and 16. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. They brought him out and left him outside the city. Verse 16 is wild. Verse 16 is wild to me because Lot hesitates. He, he knows the city is wicked. He knows God's going to destroy it. And so what's the delay? Well, this fits the overall picture of Lot in Genesis, which is that although he had faith in God like Abraham, he did not have the same sense of calling. He did not have the same pilgrim spirit that his uncle Abraham did. He was too comfortable in this wicked world and too attached to it. Instead of looking forward to the, the great promises that God had made about the future for his family, he was more excited about what he could, he could experience here and now in Sodom. Lot is a great example of worldliness. Worldliness is when things that are not inherently sins in and of themselves, things that 1 John describes as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, pleasure, possessions, positions, those, those things are not inherently sinful. But worldliness is when those things become more important to you than God and your relationship with him. In verse 16, we, we see that Lot was so worldly that he didn't actually leave the city without compulsion. He didn't, he didn't on his own just, okay, yeah, I'm going to go. He actually literally needed an angel to grab his hand and the hands of his family members and then take them out of the city to be ushered to a, a greater uh, place of safety, the next step towards safety. Now, it's easy especially just when you look at this passage, to look down on Lot. That's pretty easy. But if we search our own souls, we can often be a lot more like Lot than we care to admit, can't we? You know, we can be more excited about the temporary pleasure and security and success and experiences of this life than we are about our relationship with God and honoring Him. And so a, a thought process I'd like you to, to indulge with me is, is to imagine a thought experiment here Imagine that, that God undeniably appears to you later today. So you know it's God. He appears to you, and he says, don't go home. Don't go home. Don't get anything. Just take, take your family, take the clothes on your back, and you've got to get out of town. You have to leave town. It's going to be destroyed. Would you hesitate? Would that be easy for you to do? See, I think there are things for all of us that that, that would be difficult to hear. Hopefully we would hopefully we would obey. Hopefully we would listen. But what would make that difficult? What would cause you to hesitate? See, whatever those things are, those are probably good indications of where you're tempted towards worldliness, to the things that, that can potentially cause you to, to be more influenced by the things of this world than by your creator, than by Christ. Lot 
hesitated to obey God in verse 16. But I love God's response in verse 16 as well. The Lord said, all right, verse 16 tells us, because of the Lord's compassion for him. Because of the Lord's compassion for him. God had compassion on this compromised and immature worldly believer. And because of his compassion, the angels grabbed Lot and his whole family by the hand and they escorted them out of the city. Even there, though, we see that Lot still appears to be dragging his feet. The angels say, flee to the mountains. They say, head to the mountains, out of the range of the, the wicked cities of the plain. These are all going to be destroyed. So they say, run and don't look back. They emphasize, don't, don't look back. Lot, though, he, he expresses fear that he doesn't think he can make it. He's afraid he's going to die. And so he, he proposes something else. He says, uh, can I go to this small city of Zoar instead? Now, this might be a genuine concern. Maybe he really was afraid he wouldn't be able to make it, but some, stol- some scholars see this as another example of Lot's preference of living in a wicked city rather than intense again as a pilgrim. Zoar was one of the cities that was going to be destroyed. It was wicked like Sodom. But Lot says, I- I'd rather go there. Can I go there instead? Instead of going, going to the mountains. Whatever his motivation, the angels granted the request And they told Lot to hurry and run for Zoar because they couldn't destroy the city until he reached safety. Now the sun was high overhead. It was the full light of day when Lot finally arrived in Zoar. But as soon as he reached the city, the sky changed. The sky changed and and something unique in human history happened. We read this in verses 24 and 25. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. The KJV famously translates verse 24 as the Lord rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. This is where the the character comes from uh, preachers being a fire and brimstone preacher, enjoying talking about judgment. Preachers should never enjoy talking about the judgment of God. Christians shouldn't be excited thinking about sinners being punished. But at the same time, it's important for preachers, it's important for all Christians to be willing to to talk to people about the judgment that is coming. I've thought this week about what it must have been like witnessing, like for the people in in Sodom, seeing fire coming down from the sky, like molten rain coming down, pouring down out of the sky. I mean, that must have been an awesome an awful sight. I think that that part of what explains our culture's obsession with uh, cataclysmic uh, movies, things about the end times, I I think part of it is this fascination of thinking, what what would it feel like to see that the end is here? That humanity is just going to get wiped out. All all of earth is going to get obliterated. I was talking to someone this week, and he told me that his family, because of July 4th, they have a tradition of watching Independence Day every year for the 4th of, 4th of July, and I thought that was awesome. Now, some of you are too young to remember Independence Day, but it's the classic with Will Smith where aliens come and they're planning on wiping out humanity. And so humanity has to, they have to rally together to fight for freedom. They have to fight for survival. And I, I hadn't thought about that movie for years, but it intrigued me, and so I watched a few clips of it uh, online, and uh, I'd forgotten about this scene. There's a scene in it where the aliens, they come over New York. 
They come over to New York, and people's reactions, it's kind of interesting, I have a, a picture here. You know, they're, they're just in awe looking at it. They're like, what? Like, what in the world? They're overwhelmed. But then the aliens, they actually blow up the Empire State's building. So I have a couple pictures here. It's a pretty impressive scene, pretty epic scene. The next one, the whole thing goes, and then pretty soon it's shooting out into the whole city. And then there's a, a picture near the end where you see a good chunk of New York City. It's just devastated. It's just incinerated. And I thought to myself, you know, that's a, a little glimpse of what is being described here. But in, in this passage, it's not some of the city, it's all of the city. It's, it's all of the plains, except, except for Zoar. Now, some have proposed a, a potential natural explanation for this event, and even if that were correct, which is irrelevant in my mind, this verse is explicit that this was not a random event. Listen again to verses 24 and 25. It says, Out of the sky the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. It's like, you can't miss this. This is from God. It says, he demolished these cities. This was an act of God. This was an act of divine judgment directed at these depraved cities. And not only were the cities demolished, verse 25 stresses all the plant life was devastated as well. Ironically, even the once fertile plain that had made Sodom wealthy and had attracted Lot to first move near Sodom, it was now turned into a barren wasteland. Now, that's not all that, that Lot lost. Verse 26 records that Lot's wife looked back on the journey and became a pillar of salt. The angels had specifically commanded the family not to look back. And from what I understand, the phrase look back refers to more than just a curious or scared glance. It seems to be more of a focused gaze or stare at the city, implying that she lingered behind while looking at the city. Remember that the, the, the angels said, don't, don't look back, keep running until you get there, but apparently she lagged behind, hoping that the city would be spared so she could return to it. Jesus in Luke 17 implies that Lot's wife looked back because she didn't want to leave her old life and things behind. In many ways, she was a wife after Lot's heart. There's the same worldliness, perhaps without the, the little amount of faith that her husband had. Lot's wife, she becomes a sobering testimony throughout the ages to the fact that people can miss the salvation of God, even when he puts them in a position to, to see that salvation so clearly. He can put them in incredible positions, and it can be rejected. I mean, just think about Lot's wife. She was grabbed by the hand of an angel and brought outside the city. She was urged to flee. She was told what was going to happen. She saw the men blinded. Salvation was within sight. She could see salvation, and yet she missed it. It's interesting to me that Jewish historian Josephus said that he had seen that same pillar of salt in his day. And the warning of Lot's wife, it continues to live on in the record of Scripture for us. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Don't be like Lot's wife. This sad and tragic passage, it comes to an end in verses 27 through 29, with Abraham walking to the place he had interceded with the Lord the night before, and he witnesses the decimated cities. He sees the fire and the, the smoke going up from the plain like a furnace. And even though he doesn't know it yet, God had answered Abraham's prayer. There wasn't 10 righteous men in Sodom. There was only one compromised and, and weak in his faith individual. But God had remembered Abraham's prayer. 
That's what it says. God remembered Abraham. God, he remembered Abraham's prayer and spared Lot from being swept away in the destruction of Sodom. And so I want you to remember now the big idea of our passage. God will judge all unrepentant sinners, but he'll also rescue all those who trust in him, no matter how weak their faith is. Lot's a pretty, pretty good example of someone weak in faith, but God still spared him. Second Peter 2 captures this It says, if he, God, reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's coming to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. We're going to look again at Lot's life, Lot's life more next week. But for now, don't miss what we're told in verse 6. Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example or illustration of what's coming to the ungodly. Jesus himself uses the imagery of a fire to describe the eternal and unquenchable flames of hell. And as we observed last week, That's what every one of us deserve. All of us have offended God by our own pride, by our own lust, by our own sexual sin and greed and lack of compassion for those in need. And so if God gave us what we deserved, it would not be heaven. It would not be blessing. What we deserve is to have fire rain out of the sky on us. We deserve what Sodom and Gomorrah experienced. And 2 Peter 3 makes it clear that when when Jesus returns without warning in his glorious second coming, he's going to return with fire. That fire is is to judge the ungodly, but it's also going to incinerate this corrupted universe in preparation for the new heavens and the new earth, a resurrected universe free forever from sin and corruption. The only reason that sinners like us can be rescued from the fire of God's wrath when Jesus Christ returns is that the fire of God's wrath has already been poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross. You see, when Jesus Christ came, Jesus is the God who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He is the God who hates sin that we're going to stand before. But Jesus Christ came to voluntarily take the fire of God's wrath for your sins, to die in your place, to be punished in your place. And then he rose from the dead so that you could be rescued from hell. You could be rescued from the power of sin and freed to find real life in his love. Whether you struggle with homosexual or heterosexual sin or any other type of sin, What the gospel promises is that in him you can find not just forgiveness for your sins, but you can find something better than any desires in this world can offer. You can find what your soul is made for, and that's a relationship with your creator. That's a relationship with God. And the gospel says that if you turn to Christ, not only will God forgive your sins, he will begin to change you. He'll give you a new power, not necessarily to take away all of our sinful desires, but to give us power so we're no longer controlled by them. We can begin to have victory over them. And so just to to close, to end our message, I want you to consider with me which characters in this account your life most closely resembles. Are you like the people of Sodom, letting your lust and desires direct your life and, and laughing at the very idea of the day of judgment? I mean, think about how patient God was with Sodom. They were a wicked city for so long. They were delivered by Abraham. Their gods couldn't save them. They're saved by this 
this man who worshiped Yahweh. They were delivered by him. They had Lot, despite his poor example, they had Lot living not in the, the pattern of how they were, they were living. And then even the, the mini judgment that we saw with the blindness, there's no repentance. So God was so patient with them. But eventually, judgment came. And the same is true for all of us. If we will not repent of our sin, eventually God's judgment will come. The idea was scoffed at in Noah's time. It was scoffed at in this passage. It was scoffed at during the time of Jesus and the apostles. It's scoffed at today. Don't scoff at the idea of divine judgment. Don't scoff at it. Instead, you need to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ so that you're ready for that final day when Christ returns. Now, most of you here are probably not in that camp, but I'm afraid some of you might be in the same place as Lot's wife. You're around those who trust in God. You don't scoff at the concept of divine judgment, but at the same time, in your heart of hearts, you don't love God and his salvation. You love your things more, your house, your possessions, your comforts in this life, and if push comes to shove, You'd prefer those. You'd hold on to those, even if it meant rejecting the salvation of God. Don't be like Lot's wife. Don't love things that you can't keep when you're dead. Don't love things that can't ultimately satisfy you. Don't love things that are eventually going to burn up anyway. Jesus put it best as always. He said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? If you're like Lot's wife, you need to turn to the cross and recognize that Jesus is the supreme treasure that our souls were made for. You need to to repent of your sin, even if it's just worldliness, things that aren't inherently wrong. You need to repent of that and ask God to forgive you and ask God to make you like the man in Jesus's parable, the man who saw a great treasure and he went out and joyfully sold everything everything else he owned so that he could have that. You need to ask God to make you someone who would be willing to give up everything else that you have if that's what it costs to follow Jesus. Third, consider Lot. All of us as believers can be tempted to live like him. We can trust God for salvation, but struggle to trust him day to day to lead us and to help us live for something bigger than ourselves. I wonder if the Apostle Paul had Lot in mind in 1 Corinthians 3 when he wrote about believers who invest their leftovers and less valuable resources into the kingdom of God. Paul says that believers like that will be saved, but only as ones escaping through the flames. What a picture of Lot's life. Lot lost everything he'd invested his life in. He lost his wife. He lost his possessions. As we'll see next week, he lost the battle to raise up godly children. And so his compromises did not just hurt him, but as usual, they were even more devastating to those around him. Now, he was forgiven. He had grace. But none of us want to be like Lot. None of us read this passage and think, I I want to be like Lot when I grow up. Now, the only way, though, for us to avoid becoming like Lot as believers is to keep our mind on things above, not on earthly things. We have to keep our mind on the greatness of God and the eternal things that he's called us to. And that brings us to Abraham. Abraham was not perfect, even close, but God was bigger to him and more exciting to him than the pursuit of riches or comfort or power. Abraham walked with God, and he embraced the role that God had given him in his eternal plan, even though it was difficult. And in the same way, God has not called us out of the world. We're not called to run away from from cities, not called to run away from unbelievers. We're called to be lights in it together. 
He wants us to live our ordinary, everyday lives as students and employees, parents, children, neighbors, friends, whatever we do. He wants us to live for his glory, not conforming to the world like Lot, but being transformed by God like Abraham was so that we can represent God and boldly intercede for others. So that when the day of judgment comes, not only will we be ready, but we can point others and help them to be ready as well. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth. Thank you that you don't just tell us the things that we want to hear. Thank you that you tell us the things that we need to hear. And Lord, if there's anyone here, God, who doesn't know you, who scoffed at you, or God has, has kind of played the, played the part of a Christian, but has never really surrendered their life to you, never really trusted you for salvation, I pray that you draw them even now to yourself. And Lord, for the rest of us, God, I, I pray that you would expose in all of our hearts the different areas of worldliness, the things that aren't sin, but the things that lead us away from you, the things that, that undermine our, our love for you, that undermine our witness to those around us. God, please change us. Please help us to, to hate our sin so that we can grow in our love for you and, and grow for our love for, uh, for one another and for the city around us. We pray that you'd be glorified as a result, and we pray this all in your name. Amen.